Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, I'll, I'll read. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And the words that will be the focus of our attention today are found in verse 18. I'll read it again. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is God's Word. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we ask that you would please send your Spirit to illuminate the Scriptures so that we might understand. Lord, there is great risk of sounding domineering, of lording power over your people as we begin to understand the authority of the local church. Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts, that we would not hear things that are not said, and that we would clearly hear everything that your word teaches. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Last Lord's Day, we walked through what is probably the most popular text in all of the New Testament with regard to corrective church discipline. And you'll remember that we acknowledged from the start this common problem to use the wrong text of Scripture for the wrong case of church discipline. We saw that this passage, um, because it is probably the most popular, is probably very often misused or, or wrongly applied to the wrong application in the context of church discipline. As we studied it, we found out that this is in reference to a specific situation, a specific kind of sin where one professing Christian sins against another Christian within the church and there are four steps prescribed by our Lord. The goal of that procedure being ultimately to clearly mark out and distinguish who are in the church and, and, and who is out. Those who are believers and those who are not believers. Now, when outsiders hear that, if you're not familiar with scriptures and the church, the doctrine of the church, and you hear that teaching that it is the duty of the church to, to remove some, you might respond by saying, well, who, who, do you, who are you to decide who's in and who's out? 
Who do you think you are? The church belongs to Jesus, not you. From the world, you'll often hear, uh, only God can judge me. Only God can make that decision. Or maybe you should work on removing that plank out of your eye before you start focusing on the, the speck in my eye. What gives you the right to decide based on appearances who should and who shouldn't be considered a member of Christ's church? Well, our, our passage today hopefully will clarify the answer to those questions. Now, no one in here, we can all breathe a sigh of relief, no one in here is currently under the close watch or systematic reproofs of corrective church discipline. So that means that you may not really feel like you have a dog in that fight of, well, who are you to say? You might think, well, I'm here. If you're a member, I'm a member of the church. I'm not really in, in fear of being removed, excommunicated. So what I want to try to do is draw you in to the topic at hand. Let me ask, how many of you are Christians? How many of you are born again? How many of you are, are citizens of the kingdom of heaven? If you are, raise your hand. If you're a Christian, raise your hand. Keep them up. We can all see if you're a Christian. Okay. Who told you that you were a Christian? Who told you that you could be a member of the church of Jesus Christ? It's His church, not yours. He is, Scripture tells us, the author and perfecter of our faith. So who's to tell you that, that you are a Christian? He purchased the church with His blood for Himself, not for you. You didn't purchase it. So who are you to say that you're a Christian? What gives you the right to lay claim on the greatest promise ever conceived in, in the universe? What, was it a pastor that says... Well, if you repeat this prayer after me, you're a Christian. Maybe it was the back page of a, a gospel tract that you read. At the end of it, it said, Now, if you've, read, if you've prayed this prayer and you really meant it in your heart, you're a Christian. Perhaps it was a television preacher who said the same thing. Or perhaps it was mom and dad who said, If you'll just pray and ask Jesus into your heart, you're a Christian. Well, again, we'd have to ask, Who gave them the authority to make such eternal declarations. Who gave the pastor or the, the tract or mom and dad, who gave them the authority to say, you're in. You've done it. You've made it. The answer to those questions is, I believe, obviously, nobody. Nobody gave them that authority. As we approach our text today, this, this single verse, I believe you'll see that Jesus Christ, the Lord and head of the church has placed the authority to make such eternal declarations into the hands of one institution, and that is the local church. And so I want to use this verse to prove that and, and the surrounding context to prove that assertion, and I'm going to do so under three headings. Under three headings, again, I got a little excited with the alliteration this week, if you have the sermon guide. The first heading, we'll see the audience addressed. Then we'll see the action ascribed, and then we will see the authority assigned. So first, the audience address. We begin by asking the question of this verse, to whom is Jesus speaking? Now that may seem obvious, 
But we need to pay close attention to the surrounding context lest we miss the broader application of what's being said. Jesus begins in verse 18 by saying, Truly I say to you. Now paying attention to the, the local context, that being the very verse itself, we see that word, you. And it is a plural term. It's multiple people. Jesus is addressing a plurality of listeners. And so we could ask again, well, who, who is this plurality? Who are these people? Again, we, we step sort of outside of that a little and look at the broader context. The beginning of chapter 18, at that time, verse 1, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, it's, I think it's fairly obvious, he's speaking to his disciples. Now I have suggested in, in recent weeks that oftentimes the disciples are a representative group for the new covenant community, the, the church in its infancy. I believe that becomes even more clear in, in the Great Commission when Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always. He didn't mean just the, the apostles. He meant all of His people, the church. But we know for a fact He's speaking to His disciples here, preceding verse 18. In verse 17, we need to pay attention here also because in verse 17 He says, if He refuses to listen to them, that would be the two or three witnesses, tell it to the church. And if He refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You see, Jesus is talking to the disciples about church issues. Now, try to understand the, the logic of what Jesus is saying. For that proper procedure that we studied last week, for that discipline to be carried out, this church of verse 17 would have to be a common assembly shared by not only the two brothers who were at odds with one another, but there has to be at least one, if not two other witnesses. That makes four people at most. And then there must be a larger congregation to which the charges might be brought after he doesn't listen to the witnesses. You see, this is at least five or six. Now, some would, would add to that and say it's at least ten people, the, the minimum number that would have to be... Uh, assembled to build a synagogue in the early uh, Jewish community. But that's this church that Jesus is describing. It's a, it's a group of people, at least five or six, and in this church there is an assumed responsibility that the members have for each other. This guy must go to this guy and, and then they must call the witnesses and the witnesses must take it to the church. They are communicating with, it, with each other. They are answerable, answerable to each other. They have a sort of jurisdiction in spiritual matters over each other. You see this church in verse 17 is, is not just a reference to an intangible mass of individuals. This church by all appearances, seems to be a, a local gathering, a local assembly. People who can get together and do these things. We might say what's being spoken of in the context of this procedure is a local church. And I hope I'm not leading too much there. I believe that's fairly obvious. In verse 17, we're talking about a local church and local church discipline there prior to verse 18. Now, if we skip over verse 18 in the verses that we'll look at Next week, Jesus says, If two of you 
agree on earth. And in, in verse 20 he says, where two or three are gathered in my name. We see here that just after verse 18, Jesus reaches back to verse 16 and grabs that number. Two or three. The witnesses. And he elaborates on the manner of their union. They're gathered in the name of Jesus. So we see prior to verse 18 and following verse 18 that Jesus is not just talking about a, a vague gathering of formerly unacquainted people. That we just got to grab people and say, hey, this guy, uh, he's sinned against me and he won't listen. Would you come and, and deal with him? And he's not just talking to the disciples. He's, these are a group of people gathered under a common banner, namely the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think it's safe to conclude our Lord is speaking in the first instance to His disciples, the apostles, who are to be the, the seed, the foundation of the New Covenant Church. But as He speaks, He's also describing and prescribing measures that will apply specifically to the innumerable local churches that will be planted, that will exist throughout the church age under the Lordship of Christ. Or to state it succinctly, a little more clearly, he's speaking directly to his apostles and indirectly to the local church. Now for us, we're not apostles. We're the local church. So for, for our application, we would say that the audience being addressed is the local church. And so we can receive what he's saying as a local body. So the audience address is the local church. Point number two, the action ascribed. We could ask at this point, now that we know who he's speaking to, what is the local church doing in this verse? So we're looking for verbs. What are they doing? And he says in verse 18, there at the beginning, whatever you bind on earth. And there at the end of verse 18, whatever you loose on earth. The, the, the local church here, this you, they're, they're binding and they're loosing on earth. Now to bind, we've seen this term before and we'll, we'll come back to this, but to bind is to restrict or to restrain. It is to prohibit, to hold back from doing something. In, in Revelation chapter 20, we see that Satan is bound for a thousand years that he might not deceive the nations. See, he's, it's the same idea. He's, he's bound from a particular action. So binding is one part of the action ascribed to the local church. And we also see this word loosing, whatever you loose. That is to release or to set free, to allow rights to be exercised. That's the opposite of, of binding, you see. To bind is to restrain, to loose is to set free. So loosing is another part of the action ascribed to the local church. Now, in the context of verses 15 through 20, what could the language of binding and loosing on earth be referring to? What, what's he talking about? What has been bound and what has been loosed? I think it's fairly obvious. It's the allowing or disallowing the continuation of legitimate covenant membership within the local church. You following me? That's what he just talked about. If, if he doesn't listen, remove him. For I say to you, whatever you bind will be bound, whatever you loose will be loose. So in other words, 
Binding is saying you cannot remain with us because you're not one of us. And loosing is saying you should remain with us because you are one of us. In addition to that, if we step just slightly outside of that context of specific corrective church discipline, it's the job of the local church through the examination and the vetting of the church and the elders to evaluate potential covenant members based on the fruit of their conversion or lack thereof. The church is the one, the, the, the ones, they are the ones, that's the body that vets people for membership. And if they appear to be producing fruit and make a good profession of faith, then the church would verify their entrance into the community. So binding in that sense could also be the restraint of a local church that it exercises when it refuses membership to an unregenerate person. Because by all outward appearances, they appear to be unregenerate. You can't be a member of the, the church. And so it is the job of the church to say, you're, you're not one of us. And loosing would be the allowance of a Christian to exercise their sonship through legitimate church membership. In other words, the church says, by all means, come into the church. Be a member of the body of Christ. Binding and loosing. So, the actions ascribed to the local church that we identified in point number one are those of affirming or welcoming and maintaining true converts into the pale of the local church and refusing admission or removing the unregenerate from fellowship, those who appear to be unconverted. So that's the action. The local church is allowing people in to the church and removing people or keeping people out of the church. That's point number two, the action ascribed. Then we come to number three, the authority assigned. The authority assigned. Look back with me there at the beginning of verse 18 just for a moment. And notice that he begins with the words, Truly I say to you. We've seen this before. A very often used statement or introduction by our Lord. Truly I say to you. The older translations would say, Verily I say unto you. Or, or sometimes, Verily, Verily. The word is Amen. It's our Amen. That's His way of saying, Let me break this down for you in unmistakable terms. Let me drive this to its furthest logical conclusion so you don't have to be fuzzy about what I'm saying here. And so what is the conclusion then that he makes? What are or what is the unmistakable logical end that our Lord is trying to convey when he prescribes formal corrective church discipline? In other words, he says, do this to get rid of them or do this to keep them. Now, let me help you understand what I'm saying the church has the power to do. And then following each of these references, references to the earthly activities of the church, he speaks of heavenly activities. Notice he says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Again, we've seen this. The language shall have been bound in heaven. That which the local church 
restricted or refused or removed on the earth has a parallel implications and applications to heaven, the abode of God Himself. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, literally, shall have been loosed in heaven. That which the local church releases or, or admits and welcomes into the pale of the local church that has parallel implications and applications in heaven, the, the abode of God Himself. Now think about that for a minute in the context of church discipline. Here in, and in Matthew chapter 18, the, the discourse on the church. What is Jesus saying is the logical conclusion to the actions being ascribed to the local church. He's saying the verdict of the local church in corrective discipline holds the weight of heavenly verification. You see, what the local church allows into her properly, scripturally, what she does, in other words, when she does it right, heaven has allowed. What the local church affirms when she does it right, heaven has affirmed. What the local church welcomes when she does it right, heaven has welcomed. And what the local church restricts, heaven has restricted. What the local church refuses, heaven has refused. What the local church removes from her fellowship, when she does it right, and again, there are, there are mistakes. Churches make mistakes here. But when it's done properly, heaven has removed what the church removes. So what can we conclude when we, when we put all this together? The, the broader contextual conclusion. We can conclude that some kind of authority is being assigned to the local church, namely heavenly authority. He's saying what you do down there, I'm doing up here. It's, it's being fleshed out on the earth, those decisions that have been made in heaven. So our Lord has clearly stated, I believe, when we put all this together, He's clearly stated that when the true apostolic, biblical, local church exercises corrective church discipline, the outcome, whether that's removal or, or welcoming, the outcome is verified by heavenly authority. There is authority assigned to the church and that authority is heavenly authority. Now let's, let's go back now and sort of analyze the obvious. Namely that this language is not new. We've already seen this language. And so we need to compile sort of a, 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 a compilation of exegesis, if you will. Put together what we learned in, in chapter 16 and put together what we've learned here in chapter 18 because we need to see what Jesus is doing. In chapter 16 and verse 19, Jesus said to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So we see there, and we learn this, that the actions of binding and loosing are the legitimate use of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He says, I'm giving you the keys, and what you're going to do with the keys is you're going to bind and you're going to loose. 
And here, that same language, binding and loosing, is, is spoken of in verse 18 of chapter 18. Now, I think it's important to notice from chapter 16 that the keys are the keys of the kingdom of heaven, not the keys to the church. That, that may not seem like a big distinction, but it is. The local church is not the kingdom, and the kingdom is not the, the local church. The local church is, however, the visible, external, earthly manifestation of the kingdom. In other words, where Christ rules over the hearts of His people by the power of His Spirit, that shows itself in the local church. The kingdom is, is a bigger, broader concept, but the local church is an expression of that rule and reign of Christ. But the keys are the keys to the kingdom, not the church, the kingdom. And the keys represent heavenly authority on the earth. You'll remember God has established three primary spheres of authority on the earth, the family, the civil magistrate, and the church. And each sphere has mediated authority given to it by God. In the family, there is authority there. The, the father and then the mother carry out authority in the family. And the, in the instrument, the, the symbol of that authority is the rod of corrective discipline. For the civil magistrate, Romans 13 very clearly says that they are servants of God to carry out His wrath on the evildoer. They've been given the sword. So the family has the rod, the magistrate has the sword, and here we have the keys of the kingdom. That power to welcome and refuse entrance into the kingdom. Not the church, the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom. The keys were given to Peter in Matthew 16, 19. We have to admit that. They were given to Peter. I give you the keys. But lest we get caught up in the uh, Roman Catholic heresy of trying to trace Peter's lineage through bishops and popes, there is a reference in that very section to the church, what we might call the invisible church. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. So there is even there a reference to the church. But Peter, as a representative of the apostolic church, there in Acts chapter 2, the functional preacher of the Pentecost uh, sermon there, the establishment of that first church, he, he does act as an apostle, as a part of the foundation of the church. But we wouldn't say that it is merely him, because then we come to chapter 18. And in chapter 18, verse 18, those same keys, that same power to bind and loose is clearly given to the local church. Our Lord confirms that these keys of the kingdom of heaven are not reserved just for Peter and not just for the invisible church as God sees it, but they are handed down by the Holy Spirit to true local churches Everywhere, every local church that would carry out corrective church discipline has this authority. They've been given these keys of the kingdom. So then we come back to chapter 18. And verse 18 here, in, and concluding this exposition, by spelling out 
the solidarity, the union between the judgments of the local church and the verdict of heaven, our Lord here, He's just expounded more fully on what He had already said in chapter 16. You see, it's progressively being revealed. Now I want to summarize this. And I'm going to say it slowly and I, and because this is the important part. This is what we need to hear. The symbol of divine authority in matters pertaining to the spiritual rule and reign of Christ on the earth, the keys of the kingdom, have been given to the gathered local church. That is to say, the representative of Christ's authority on the earth now, His redemptive rule and reign on the earth over the hearts of His people, is the local church. That's why a local church can admit to or remove from fellowship. Because we have His authority. So if we come back to where we started, who gave Covenant Bible Church the authority to allow in or remove people from fellowship? You just got 30 people together and you're renting a block building and most of your young families. I mean, who gave you that authority? Who gave Covenant Bible Church the authority to declare who is a member of the kingdom of heaven and who is not? I'll tell you. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is King, Master, Head, and Groom of the church, has given that authority. Now let me state some doctrinal assertions. Some I've already stated, but I want to restate them for clarity. Doctrinal, doctrinal assertions that could be deduced from this, this passage, these truths, and then we'll look at some applications. I just want to state these things and, and with little comment. I would recommend going back and, and thinking on these because some of these are pretty, pretty weighty. From the text specifically, we can see, number one, the local church, properly ordered, is the representative authority of Christ on the earth. As one author puts it, the local church is like the embassy of heaven. We're on foreign soil here. This is not our home. But in the local church, here we gather together and it's as if we are in the realm of heaven. We're the embassy of heaven on the earth. Christ's physical body has ascended into the heavens at the right hand of the majesty on high, but His spiritual body is on the earth expressed in local churches. So the local church properly ordered is the representative authority of Christ on the earth. Second one that we can get straight out of this text. The true biblical local church of Jesus Christ gathered in His name has been given the authority to confirm passage into or disavow membership in the kingdom of heaven. We've been given the authority to confirm membership, or confirm passage into or disavow membership in the kingdom of heaven. Remember, the keys are the keys of the kingdom, not the church. So what we're saying when we let someone in the church is you're a member of the kingdom of heaven as far as we can tell. You've, you've made a good profession. We can see you're bearing the fruit of repentance and faith. Therefore, as far as we can tell, you appear to be a citizen of the kingdom. We can confirm it. Again, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is the redemptive rule and reign of Christ in the heart of His people. 
And so only a true biblical local church has the authority to say whether a person is a citizen of the kingdom or not. In other words, only the local church can say you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. We can get that straight out of this text. By implication, though, we can also see that what the local church does in accordance with the Word of God and the Spirit of God has the authority of Christ behind it. Now notice that I said in accordance with the Word of God and the Spirit of God. If a local church just gets together off the cuff and throws something together, we can't say this has the authority of Christ. And if a local church starts to do things that are unbiblical, that are ungodly, that cause disunity or discord amongst the brethren just because some people want to do it, that does not have the authority of Christ. But when the church gets together in accordance with the Word of God and the Spirit of God and plans and schedules and, and carries out the ministry of the church, the authority of Christ is there in what they do. The church... In, in relation to this, the church does have the authority to bind the consciences of men. And this is why we have to be so careful that we do not go beyond what is written. Our duty is to preach the Word. And the Word binds. It's the job of the church to, to preach it. So we may not go beyond what is written, but when we stick to what is written, the church has the authority to bind the consciences, to obligate the people of God to obedience. So it has the authority of Christ behind it. Fourth assertion, what Christ is doing on the earth, He's doing through the local church. When it comes to disseminating the Word of God and making disciples, that happens through the local church. When it comes to sending preachers or missionaries, that happens in the local church. When it comes to saying, this man may preach and this man may not preach, Christ does that through the local church. When it comes to caring for the needs of the saints, that happens through the local church. Christ does that through the local church. When it comes to proclaiming the gospel locally and globally, what we would call missions, that happens as the local church plants local churches. Going overseas and digging a well or putting on a roof, that's not missions. That's mercy ministry. That's helpful. We should do that for our brothers and sisters. But missions, according to Scripture, is sending people from a church to plant another church or, or training men, indigenous men in an area to plant a local church. What Christ is doing on the earth, He's doing through the local church. And fifthly, only the local church has been given the authority to do these things. You know, God, God doesn't take very kindly to people usurping His authority, trying to take authority for themselves that He has reserved for Himself or that He's placed in a certain institution. So the mission agency does not have the authority to send missionaries. The government does not have the authority to care for the needs of the saints. That's been given to the church. That's what the church does. The parachurch organization does not have the authority to plant churches. The individual Christian cannot just say, well, I'm going to preach. I'm going to go and preach. Now, that's the, that's the job of the church. The, the traveling evangelist, the revival preacher, does not have the authority to, to make disciples and train up people in the context of a church. That's the job of the local church. So only the local church has been given authority to do those things. So those are just five assertions. You can go back and think on those. 
I want to give you three applicable imperatives. In other words, we see this text, we see the, the doctrine that we can pull out of it, but, but what should you do right now? What should you do right now? First thing that you should do right now is submit to Christ. Submit to Christ. In Matthew chapter 28, in verse 19, Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, speaking of Jesus Christ, as Paul writes, He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Philippians 2, 9 and 10, Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18, Jesus says, I died and behold, look, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. If you've not yet repented of your sin and bowed the knee in humble submission to the King of Kings, it's my job, it's my prerogative as His servant to command you, repent. Bow to the King. He's King. You don't, you're not going to make Him King. You're not going to make Him Lord. He is. And someday, everyone will bow the knee, either under force or willingly. So I would say... Submit to Him. He's a good King. He's a, he's a loving King. He's a gracious King. He's the only King who's ever laid down His life for the, for the sake of His citizens and then taken it back up again to rule over them. So I would say, first thing, submit to Christ. The giver of the keys, the one who disseminates the keys to all the various spheres, He's King over all the spheres, you see. So submit to Christ. That's the first thing. We dare not elevate the local church above Christ or pretend that submitting to Christ is somehow secondary. We say submit to Christ first. But then we might ask in, in practicality, what does that look like? What does it look like for me to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the second application is then submit to the local church. Submit to the local church. Now notice I did not say join the local church, although that is a part of it. And I did not say attend and show up to a local church, although that is a part of it. And I did not just say entertain her social events, just, just be there, although that is a part of it. Rather, I'm saying submit to the local church. Come under the authority of the church. Submit yourself to, their, to her care. Submit to being accountable to the members of the church and agree to being liable to the members. That is, come in as a body and, and say, I'm covenanting with you all. We're all in this together. You're responsible for me and I'm responsible for you and we're liable to one another as a church. As Jonathan Lehman writes in his book, The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love, Quote, submitting to the local church is how we submit to Christ's lordship. It is the fruit of repentance. It is obedience to the one we profess as the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was Peter's confession. When we confess the same thing, 
out of that flows membership in the church. He says it is where the believer submits. It, again the local church, is the place on earth that this happens. He goes on to say, still quoting, to refuse his lordship by refusing to submit to a true local church calls into question whether we have truly been converted. If we will not submit to his arm of authority on the earth, then who are we to say we're even submitting to him at all? So submit to Christ by submitting to the local church. Now what does that submission look like? Again, most of us here you could say, well, I'm a member of this church. So I've, I've done number one and number two. What does it look like for the member? Well, the third application is participate in her expressions of Christ's headship. Participate in her expressions of Christ's headship. If the local church is the location of the express authority of Jesus Christ on the earth, then what the church does, and here's the clarifier, under the supervision of Scripture is the exercise of the headship of Christ. When the church comes together and uses the Bible to do things, that is how we exercise as a church the headship of Christ. That's how He exercises His authority. Notice I did not say the headship of the elders. The church, the body. And so, so to participate in the activities of the church is to live life under the headship of Christ. Does that make sense? When we do what the church does, that is how we live our lives under the headship of Christ. So, several even more practicals here. Participate in her worship. In all of the various aspects of the worship service. Singing, prayer, listening, fellowship, all of the things we do. Participate. You're a part of the body. This is not the, this is not the, the preaching show... It's not the music show. It's not the slide show, obviously. This is a, a body coming together. And so when we sing, sing loud. You say, well, I can't sing very good. I, I can't find that here. It just says sing. Sing loud. Add your amen or amen to the prayers. When we pray, I'm not praying for me. We're praying as a body. When you go with me to the throne, add your amen if you agree. Engage the body in fellowship time. When we're fellowshipping after the service, talk to people. Just participate in the, the regular events of the worship service. Participate in her preaching. Now, you might think that's strange, that me standing here would say you should participate in the preaching, but you should. Starting on Monday, you participate in the preaching by praying for the preacher, whoever he may be. Pray for the preacher. Prepare your heart beforehand to hear the word. For many of us, we spend an hour talking about everything else we've done all week and then we expect to just sit down and all of a sudden be focused in on the Word of God and receive it. When we should probably take some time to set aside everything else we have as we come into the presence of God. Again, I think predominantly to the men, give your amen in agreement to the truth of the Word of God. That's biblical. You know, the Bible describes and expects Old Testament and New Testament. The people of God, I, believe, I do believe predominantly the men, will add their amen in the worship service. So participate. 
in the preaching. The third one, participate in corporate prayer. Now this is going to be our subject next week. I've decided to take, take this up next week. But this idea that corporate prayer is good, but personal private prayer is equally as good, if not better. That idea, that's got to go. It's not, it's not biblical. And I have a gift for every man in the room. If you're a member of this church, a gift for you to take home today with regard to the subject of corporate prayer so that you're not taken completely off guard next week. But participate in corporate prayer. Number four, participate in her discipline. That means as members, we take the Word of God and we rebuke and we reprove and we exhort and we encourage one another to love and good deeds. To, we call each other away from sin. If there is one who is wayward, who we know is under systematic reproofs of corrective church discipline, we pray diligently, we volunteer to go to them and, and call them to repentance, participate in her discipline. Again, when we talked about this, it's church discipline. It's not elders' discipline. It's church discipline. And that goes for formative and corrective church discipline. Even when someone's not in trouble, encourage one another. A fifth one. This is a big one. Honor her schedule. Honor her schedule. That is the local church. When we submit to a local body, that is when we covenant with a local church, we are agreeing to take part in the things that church does. Again, many people are under this impression that Lord's Day worship and just once is all that's expected of me from Scripture. You know, we can't go to the Bible to prove it, but that's all that's expected. Anything above and beyond that, well, that's just me just being generous and offering my presence in the gathering of the church. It's like a buffet. You know, you go and, well, I'm going to eat something but what I eat, and how much I eat, and where I eat it, and how I eat it, well, that's all up to me. Again, that attitude must go. Because the authority of the church, or the local church, has the authority to bind the consciences of men according to the Word of God. We may not bind the consciences of men beyond the Word of God. But we must most certainly adjure the people of God to the means of grace commanded and implied in His Word. And so where the Word of God gives generals, it's the duty of the local church as a body to incorporate those in specifics. So when the Bible says, I believe, very clearly expects the New Testament church to be a church of corporate prayer, it's not up for every individual to, to decide when they want to do corporate prayer. That's what the church does. You see, we must honor her schedule and we are bound, that is, we should feel obligated to participate. Not obligated as in I'm being dragged here, but obligated in that I feel the authority of Christ drawing me to participate with my church body. So honor her schedule. Engage in her life, that is, Outside of the Sunday gathering, fellowship, encouragement, socialization, communication. Be an active member of the church body. There are some of us who nobody sees between Sundays. And nobody would see unless somebody else reached out and said, Would you come hang out with us? That's not good. That's not healthy. That's why we feel so compelled when we do get together on the Lord's Day to catch up on everything we've done all week. It's because we haven't seen each other. And that should not be for the local church. 
to just engage in her life, the, the life of the members of the body. And lastly, support her ministry. Support her ministry. We have all vowed, if you're a member of this church, you have vowed, including myself, to support the ministry of the local church through the weekly giving of offerings. Whether it be a tithe or whether it be more than a tithe or less than a tithe, We've all made that covenant. We've agreed. And from ancient times all the way back to the beginning of the gathered people of God, it was the duty of the worshipers to fund the worship. Christianity at its core is submitting to Christ as King in all things. That's where we start. Christ is King. And so when we begin to consider our finances, our bills, our necessities, the ministry of the local church for the Christian is one of those necessities. See, very often we, we look at what we need to live off of and then we look for a job and we start making our money and we hope that there's some left over to give to the advance of the kingdom of God on the earth and the preaching of the gospel. When rather we should start by saying, I'm a citizen of the kingdom. I must, I must come in and invest according to the commands of Scripture, invest in the ministry of that kingdom as expressed through the local church. So we support her ministry. Now these are just a few of the ways that we submit to Christ by submitting to the local church, by participating in her expressions of His headship. You see, that's how that works. So in closing, speaking of God the Father, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, He, God the Father, raised Him, that is God the Son, Christ, from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet, and then He gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. That is to say, the Lord Jesus Christ, through His obedience unto death for the church and His resurrection on behalf of the church has been placed as head of the church. Paul would say in Philippians, the Father has highly exalted Him. We read it and given Him a name that is above every name. At the Lord's table, we exercise our willingness to come under the authority of the church by commemorating and proclaiming the death of Christ as a gathered body in obedience to His command. See, that's just one of the ways Christ says, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Paul says... When you're together, when you're together, as you gather, the local church comes together to observe the Lord's Supper. And we come in and we say He's commanded it. My local church says we're going to do it every Sunday. I'm going to be there every Sunday and participate in the Lord's Supper. Commune with my Savior. You see, that's exercising or exemplifying our submission to the headship of Christ. So as the elements are passed, as always, take a moment for self-examination, for confession of sin, and thanksgiving, of course, for His death on our behalf.